Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Normally, these myth episodes are pretty short, but if you've already read today's selection, you might have noticed that it goes on and on and on. (laughs) So I think we should just dive right in. It's also why this is dropping on a Monday and not a Friday. And today we have chapter nine of book one of the Bibliotheca, the last chapter in book one. I'm using the Fraser translation. If you're reading online like I am, that's probably what you're using too. We've spent a great deal of time on the descendants of Iolus, and we are not done. Chapter 9 starts with his sons. First, Athamas. He rules Boeotia with his first wife, Nephili. They have a son, Phrixus, and a daughter, Heli. His second wife is Ino, and their children are Laarchus and Melikertes. Ino is the stereotypical evil stepmom and plots against her stepchildren. She convinces the women of Boeotia to parch the wheat to make it look like the harvest failed. Athamas sends messages to Delphi to ask the oracle what they should do. Ino, clever evil stepmother that she is, convinces the messengers to say that the oracle says Phrixus must be sacrificed to Zeus. There is some historical evidence that this was common practice, the sacrifice of the oldest son to prevent crop failure, a practice that eventually shifted to sacrificing a ram instead. Nephili, however, is not having this. Before Phrixus can be sacrificed, she snatches up both of her children and flees. Now, Hermes had given Nephili this flying ram whose fleece was gold. We'll come back to that. Uh, She puts her children on it and sends it off to what is now Turkey and beyond. But as they're crossing the water, Heli falls off the ram and drowns, and that part of the sea is now known as the Hellespont. Sound familiar? Phrixus keeps flying until he and the ram reach Colchis, also should sound familiar, where Aetes rules. And you remember Aetes? His father is the son, and he has two sisters, Pasiphae, who marries Minos, and a certain Circe, or Kirke. Aedes is happy to take Phrixus in and even marries him to one of his daughters, Calchiope. Phrixus sacrifices the ram to Zeus and gives the fleece to Aetes. Aetes hangs the fleece on an oak tree in a grove dedicated to Ares. But we'll come back to that later. As for Phrixus and Calchiope, they have four children, Argus, um, Melus, Frontus, and Kitisaurus. Uh, but back to Athamas. Hera makes him go mad, and he shoots Laarchus with an arrow. Ino throws herself and Melikertes into the sea. Why? This text doesn't say, although Fragments of a Tragedy by Euripides indicates that it has to do with Athamas helping raise baby Dionysus, which pissed Hera off. Anyway, Athamas is banished after the murder. He settles in a new country, names it Athamantia, like you do, and marries Themisto. They have four children, Lucon, Erythrios, Scanius, and Ptos. Now for Sisyphus, another son of Aeolus. He founds Ephira, which you might know as Corinth. His wife is Merope, one of Atlas's daughters. Their son is Glaucus, and, uh, and his son is Bellerophon, who is famous for killing the Chimera. Not Hercules. Bellerophon. But that's another story. Sisyphus you might know for his eternal punishment in Hades, rolling a stone to the top of a hill only to watch it roll back to the bottom. 
You see, Zeus kidnapped Aegina, and her dad, Aesopus, was looking for her, and Sisyphus spilled the beans, thus the eternal punishment. Zeus sucks. Dion rules Focus and marries Diomede. They have one daughter, Asterodia, and four sons, the most famous of which is Cephalus. He marries Procris, but Dawn falls in love with him and kidnaps him. I mean, seriously, the gods suck. Perieres rules Messini and marries Gorgophone, whose dad is Perseus, which explains why her name sounds a little like Gorgon. They have four sons, but we'll come back to all of them later because some people say that Perieres' dad was isn't actually Aeolus, but is in fact Kinor, uh, Kinortus, one of the descendants of Atlas. So that's when we'll talk about this family, when we get to the descendants of Atlas. The author of this work makes some interesting choices in his arrangement of his subject material. Anyway, Magnes marries a naiad, and they have two sons who colonize Cephas, short and sweet. Salmoneus moves to Elis and founds a city there, but he decides that he's equal to Zeus, or more specifically, that he is Zeus, which Zeus is not going to take. So he smites Salmoneus with a thunderbolt and destroys his city and everyone who lives there, so don't bother looking for it. However, before he dies, Salmoneus has a daughter named Tiro, and she's raised by his brother Cretheus, which is why she doesn't die in the smiting. She falls in love with the river Anipius, but Poseidon, who is the worst, decides that he wants her, so he takes the form of Anipius. Tiro gets pregnant with twins and does the only respectable thing. She exposes the babies. A passing mare kicks one in the face, leaving a permanent mark, but the mare's owner adopts the children, naming them Peleus after the mark in his face and Neleus, Peleus and Neleus. After Peleus and Neleus grow up, they learn that their mother is being ill-treated by their stepmother, so they kill her, even though she's taken refuge at an altar to Hera, proof that Peleus never has much respect for the goddess Hera. Peleus and Neleus have a falling out after that. Neleus is banished to Messene and marries Chloris. They have a whole slew of children, one of whom is Periclymenus, who Poseidon gives the power to shapeshift to. He uses this power when fighting Heracles, but Heracles is the greatest and ultimately wins. Heracles actually kills all of Neleus' sons except for Nestor because Nestor is raised among the Gerenians. He marries Anaxabiah and has several children, one of whom you might already know, Perseus. Peleus marries a different Anaxabiah, unless he marries Philomache, depends on who you ask. They have one son, Acastus, and four daughters, Pisidike, Pelope, Hippothoe, and Alcestis. You remember, may remember her from the Euripides play about her. We'll come back to that, at least if I remember correctly. Like I said, this is a really long chapter. Cretheus founds Iolcus and marries Tiro, his niece, because mythology is messed up. They have three sons, Iason, Amythion, and Furies. Amythion lives in Pelus and marries his niece, Idomene. Mythology is seriously messed up. They have two sons, Bias and Melampus. Melampus lives in the country by an oak. A family of snakes live in the oak. 
He has his servants kill the snakes, and Melampus raises the baby snakes until they're as tall as he is, and they clean out his ears with their tongues, which I suppose is one way to do that. This gives him the power to understand the language of birds, which makes me think of a certain Siegfried from Norse mythology, which makes me think of a philosophy professor I had in college whose wife told him they would not be naming their son Siegfried because then his name would have been Siegfried Siegfried. But I digress. It's just a funny story. Anyway, Melampus then gets the gift of reading auspices from Apollo and becomes known as a soothsayer. Bias, on the other hand, decides he wants to marry Pero, whose dad is Neleus. Neleus agrees, but only if Bias can bring him the kind of philacus. Uh, some cows, right? They have the fiercest guard dog, and Bias simply can't figure out how to complete the task and asks Melampus to do it. Melampus agrees. He's seen a sooth that says that he's going to get caught trying to steal the kind, but that he'll get them after he's been imprisoned for a year. He gets caught and gets thrown in a cell, but he talks to the worms in the roof, and after about a year, he asks the worms how much of the beams are holding the roof up, you know, how much is left. The worms tell him they've eaten most of it. So Melampus asks to be moved, which he is, and then the roof caves in. Philacus is amazed that Melampus foretold the roof collapse and releases him. He asks how his son Iphiclus might have children and reads their entrails, uh, sorry, might have children, and Melampus agrees to help on the condition that he be given the kine. He sacrifices two bulls and reads their entrails and talks to some birds and learns this. Philacus was gelding rams one day and set the bloody knife down next to Iphiclus. The boy freaked out and ran away and he stuck the knife in a sacred oak. The tree has now grown around the knife. If the knife can be found and the rust on the knife scraped off and mixed with water for Iphiclus to drink for 10 days, of course, 10 days, obviously, then he'll have a son. Philacus and Iphiclus do all that and Iphiclus has a son. Meanwhile, Melampus takes the kind back to Pelus and Bias gets to marry Pyrrho and eventually they move to Argos. Bias and Pyrrho's son is Talos. He marries his cousin Lysimachi and they have six children. Parthenopaeus' son, Promachus, is one of the famous seven against Thebes. And Mechisteus' son, Euryalus, might sound familiar from the Iliad? Pronax's son is Lycurgus, and Adrastus has three daughters and two sons. We now move back up the family tree to Furies, another of Cretheus' sons. He also has a son named Lycurgus because it's not confusing enough. He lives in Nymphia and marries Eurydice, or maybe Amphithea, and, all, and has a son named Opheltes, who is also known as Archemerus, you know, to keep it simple. And we move back up the tree again to Admetus, who may sound familiar. He marries Alcestis, daughter of Peleus. While he's wooing Alcestis, Apollo is disguised as a servant. Peleus says he'll give his daughter to the man who can yoke a lion and a boar to a cart. This is no problem for Apollo, so he helps Admetus out, and that's how Admetus and Alcestis get married. But during the marriage sacrifices, Admetus forgets Artemis, so she fills their bedroom with snakes. Apollo helps Admetus make good with Artemis and then helps him get a favor from the fates. Stop me if you've heard this before. When it's time for Admetus to die, if he can find a volunteer, that person will die in his place. 
So when the time comes, neither of his parents are willing to volunteer, but Alcestis does. But it's okay. Persephone releases her from the bonds of death. Or maybe Heracles has a fight with Hades to retrieve her. The author has heard it both ways. And just when you think this chapter is at a good stopping point, oh no. We have another whole story, and since the next several sections stay on the same topic, let's take a short break here before finishing the chapter. We now move to Iason, whose names may sound familiar from the story we've already covered about his son, Jason. Yes, we now get the story of Jason and the Argonauts. You can see why I suggested a short break. <laughs> Jason lives in Iolcus, where Peleus is king. Peleus does the usual checking in with the oracle to get a status update, and he's told to beware the man with a single sandal. One day, Peleus is making sacrifices to Poseidon and calls for others, including Jason, to join him. Jason hurries from his home in the country to the shore, but he loses one of his sandals when crossing a river. And then Peleus realizes the oracle was talking about Jason. So he makes up a story. He asks Jason what he'd do if he'd received an oracle saying he'd be murdered by a citizen. Jason, for some reason, says that he'd send that citizen to fetch the Golden Fleece. So Peleus immediately orders Jason to go fetch the Golden Fleece. Jason gets help from Argus, who builds a 50-oar ship named after him, the Argo, and Athena fits out the prow with a piece of wood that talks. With permission from the Oracle, Jason assembles his crew of heroes, and they set sail. I will spare you all the names. 50 oars means 50 heroes, and we've already covered all of them in the Argonautica. So, with Jason in charge, they sail off and land at Lemnos. At this time, Lemnos is ruled by Queen Hypsipyle. Here's why. The women of Lemnos didn't properly honor Aphrodite, so, and I'm going to quote because it's a delightful sentence, she visited them with a noisome smell. Or she gave them some serious B.O. And their husbands used this as an excuse to, ta uh, to kidnap some women from Thrace. So the women of Lemnos murdered their fathers and husbands, except for Thoas, Hypsipyle's dad, whom she hides. And that's why Hypsipyle is currently queen. The Argonauts take advantage of an island of single women. Jason and Hypsipyle hook up and have two sons, Euneus and Aphrobinus. Then the Argonauts sail to where Sisychus is king of the Doliones. They have a nice visit and set sail again. But they get lost, go in a circle, and wind up back among the Doliones, which would probably be fine if the Doliones didn't think the Argonauts were their mortal enemy, the Pelasgians. It's dark, and they don't know who they're fighting, and the Argonauts kill a lot of Doliones, including Sisychus. Once the sun comes up, they realize what's happened. They all throw a massive funeral, and then the Argonauts sail to Mesia. Heracles and Polyphemus stay there because Helus, the robin to Heracles' Batman, goes to fetch water and is kidnapped by some nymphs because they think he's pretty. That's not a good reason. So Heracles and Polyphemus go off in search of Helus. Polyphemus stays and founds the city of Chius, but Heracles returns to Argos. Unless you ask Herodotus, who says that Heracles becomes a slave at the court of Omphale. Unless you ask 
Pherakides, who says that Heracles is left behind in Thessaly because the Argo says she can't carry him and all of the other Argonauts. I mean, unless you ask Demaratus, who says he goes all the way to Colchis and is the actual leader of the Argonauts. Mythology is fun. The Argonauts sail from Mesia to the land of Brabikes. Uh, there, King Amicus challenges them to a boxing match. Pollux takes up the challenge and kills him with one blow. The Babriques don't take kindly to their king's death, and the Argonauts flee under a hail of arrows. Then the Argonauts sail to Salmdesus in Thrace, where they meet Phineas, the blind seer. No one agrees whether his dad is Agenor or Poseidon or exactly why he's blind, but he's definitely blind and tormented by the harpies. And the story changes depending on who you ask, but however it happens, the sons of Boreas free Phineas of the harpies' torment. The harpies gone, Phineas gives the Argonauts directions and advice on how to avoid the clashing rocks. The Argonauts follow his advice, sending a dove through first, which sounds a bit like the, another myth from this part of the world, but it's really through the help of Hera that they're able to make it through with only minor damage. And then the clashing rocks freeze because they were fated to stop clashing once a ship was able to make it through. Next, they land with the Mariandinians live say that 10 times fast. I couldn't even say it once. King Lycus is happy to have them, but Idmon the seer gets gored by a boar and dies. Antiphus dies too, so Ancaeus becomes the helmsman. It's usually a sign of bad luck once your helmsman dies, but they find a new one. Then the Argonauts sail past Thermodon in the Caucasus and come to the river Phasis, also known as Colchis. Finally, they pull into port, and Jason goes to ask Aetes to give him the fleece. Aetes agrees, but only if Jason can yoke his fire-breathing bulls. They were a gift from Hephaestus, and so some dragon's teeth, which were a gift from Athena. Jason doesn't know how to do this, but it's okay. Medea has fallen in love with him, and she's a witch, the daughter of Aetes and Edia, who is one of Ocean's daughters. She tells Jason she'll help him, but only if he promises to marry her and take her to Greece with him. He agrees. She gives him a lotion that will protect him and his gear from fire for one day, and she warns him that an army will grow where their teeth are sown, but she tells them how he can trick the army into fighting amongst themselves, making it easier to pick them off one by one. Jason does as Medea directs. He yokes the bulls and sows the teeth and defeats the army, but Aetes changes his mind. He decides that he'd rather burn the Argo, kill the crew, and keep possession of the fleece. So that night, Medea drugs the dragon that guards the fleece, grabs the fleece, and then gives it to Jason. And all the Argonauts, along with Medea, her brother, and the Golden Fleece, board the Argo and flee. Aetes soon discovers what Medea has done, and he boards his ship and chases after the Argo. When Medea sees her father coming, she kills her brother, dismembers him, and throws the pieces overboard. Aetes, Aetes has to stop to gather up all the pieces and give his son a proper burial. But he sends the rest of his fleet after the Argo. Near the Eridanus River, Zeus sends a storm to punish the Argonauts for the murder. And the magic talking wood in the prow of the ship tells them to go to Circe to be purified. So that's what they do. The Argo then sails past the sirens, but Orpheus outsings them, so they survive. Well, except for one who makes a break for it, but he's picked up by Aphrodite and dropped in Lily Bayum, which is just a fun place to say. The Argo then gets help from Thetis and her sisters to steer past Scylla and Charybdis. 
They pass the cattle of the sun and eventually land on Corkira, where the Phaeacians live. Everybody loves the Phaeacians. The Colchians lose sight of the Argo and decide to colonize the region instead of sailing home. Well, except for a handful who do make it to Phaeacia. That group demands King Elkinoas give Medea to them. He agrees on the condition that she hasn't married Jason yet. Queen Aridi, knowing that this is what her husband will suggest, arranges a shotgun wedding. So that handful of Colchians decide to just stay in Phaeacia. Who wouldn't? It's a lovely place. Medea, on the other hand, gets to keep sailing with Jason and the Argonauts. They sail through another storm, but Apollo sends flashes of light to help them find an island to ride it out. They build an altar to Apollo on that island, and they have a party. They set sail again, stopping briefly at Crete, where Medea's other aunt is queen. This, there's this bronze man there who keeps guard, and he pelts, Argo, pelts the Argo with stones. So Medea kills him through drugs or wiles, or maybe Poyas just shoots him in the ankle, like Achilles. Depends on who you ask. They spend a night on Crete before setting sail again. They eventually get back to Iolcus, having spent a mere four months for all of this. Back in Iolcus, Peleus decides to kill Iason, but Iason gets permission to die more honorably by suicide instead. Jason's mother curses Peleus and hangs herself, leaving behind another son you don't need to remember because Peleus kills him too. Jason hands over the fleece and decides revenge is a dish best served cold. So instead, he sails away to the Isthmus and dedicates the Argo to Poseidon. But don't worry about revenge. Medea, as you may recall, is on it. She convinces Peleus' daughters to cut him into teeny tiny pieces and then boil him. She has drugs that will make him young again if they do that. And she proves it by cutting up a ram, boiling it, and pulling a lamb out of the pot. It doesn't work, so Medea and Jason get their revenge, but they also get exiled. So they go to Corinth and live quite happily for, can you guess? Ten years, of course, and then King Creon decides that Jason should marry Princess Glauke, which he does, divorcing Medea in the process. She does not take this well. She murders Glauke with a poisoned robe, killing Creon in the process. She kills her sons by Jason, borrows Helios's chariot, and flees to Athens. Or maybe she didn't kill her sons and she just left them at an altar to Hera, and the Corinthians are the ones who kill them. Either way, Medea goes to Athens and marries Aegeus. She has another son, but she starts plotting against Theseus and gets exiled again, taking her son with her. His name is Medus. He conquers a whole bunch of barbarian lands and names them Medea with an I, not an E, so Medea, not Medea. And eventually Medea returns to Colchis. Well, she's been gone. Uncle Perses has deposed Papa Aetes. So Medea kills Uncle Perses and gives the throne back to her dad. And we have finally reached the end of chapter nine. There's a reason I had to move this episode to a Monday. (laughs) It has taken me a long time to write it. I can usually write a myth episode in a day. This has taken a week and obviously not quite done yet. And you can probably guess why. Let's talk about Medea. Although as I was recording this, I was thinking, ooh, we should talk about Gila too. I'll put comments about her in uh, the blog. Let's talk Medea. There are multiple sources that tell her story. Obviously, 
this is not the first one we've read. It's at least the third one, I think, that we've read off the top of my head. And we get an even more complicated picture of her in this version than than we get before. Did it ever occur to you that she didn't murder her children? I mean, it did to me, but not that there was ancient source material that indicated that maybe she didn't do it. Um, I, I mean, so probably not. The story most of us know about her is what Euripides tells us. Um, but what if what if Euripides was just an amazing, tragic poet, which you know he was. He was awesome. What if? Medea didn't do it. What if the Corinthians did? No one would believe her. No one would believe Medea if she said, I didn't kill my children, the Corinthians did. And she's a barbarian, right? Anyway, I think it's interesting to see how her agency changes as she moves away from Colchis. In Colchis, she is 100% in charge. Jason doesn't know what he's doing. And Medea says, it's okay, I've got this. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Oh, fine, I will just go get the fleece myself. Um, 100% charge. As they're fleeing, she makes sure they're able to get out of Colchis, right? Um, But by the time she gets to meet the Phaeacians, she is a totally passive character in in that instance. Um. She struggles to regain her power, as we see in all of her revenge stories. But it isn't until she's back in Colchis that she is again 100% in charge. Now, what to the ancient Greeks is a sign of civilization? Patriarchy, right? We can't let women be in charge of things. If women try, we need to knock them down, right? And Medea is punished as she pushes against proper Greek civilization. But once she's back home, away from the quote-unquote civilized world of Greek mythology, she is the kingmaker again. She is the one deciding that her father will still be in charge of Colchis and not her uncle. Um, Just a little disappointing that she just doesn't make herself queen and, you know, kill her dad too. But maybe that's a story for another day. But... She is still, as I noted, in charge. So what do you think of the various stories covered today? What do you think of Medea? What about the rest of this lengthy chapter? (laughs) Pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Depends on your platform. If you're feeling inclined, you can support this podcast on Patreon. The URL is in the show notes too. In the next episode, we will finish Terence's plays with Adelphoe. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.